0: Across the United States, there are over 140 million poor and low wealth people who are struggling to survive this according to the Poor People's Campaign. Among those 140 million are black people and other communities of color that are disproportionately impacted by the wealth divide. But the vast majority, if you would believe this, are white people. In relative terms, Native Americans and Alaska Natives have the highest poverty rate of any racial group at 26.2%. Black people have the second highest poverty rate at 22%, and Latinos have the third highest poverty rate at 19.4%. The racial wealth divide is also gendered, with women and our children bearing the brunt of poverty. Indeed, 73% of the poor are women and our children. Households led by Native American women at the highest poverty rates at 42.6%, followed by those headed by immigrant women at 41%, headed by Latina women, 40.8%, and Black women at 38.8%. Meanwhile, cuts in federal housing assistance and affordable subsidized housing since the 1970s have contributed to rising structural homelessness. This and the gutting of the safety net, in particular, Clinton's welfare reform bill. A government survey of people who were homeless in 2017 found that 41% of them were black, 22% were Latino. Furthermore, even under the Affordable Care Act introduced by former President Barack Obama, about 31 million people in the United States remain uninsured, including 4.6 million black people and 10.2 million Latinos. Also among those who graduate from college with skyrocketing student debt, a majority are women and people from black and Latino communities. Among For-profit college students, 64% are women, and 52% are people of color, this according to the Institute for Policy Studies. And to top it off, many communities of color are in other forms of crippling debt that they'll never be able to pay off and have no wealth to their name, including the value of the family car. 19% of all US households, about 60 million people, 30% of black households and 27% of Latino households have zero wealth or their debts exceeded the value of their assets. As the racial wealth divide in the United States continues to widen, economic and political policies continue to favor white people over people of color, including in the tax system. And uh, also, uh, some of the news that have been in the headlines the last few days is that some of the richest people in the United States are not paying any taxes or very little taxes. Uh, Michael Bloomberg, uh, Warren Buffett, Jeff Bezos, and others who have supported rising tax rates for the wealthy both have zero Income tax bills, this according to CNN. Bezos, the richest person on the planet, only pays about 20% in taxes for his reported income. Let us go to a clip now from CBS Miami on wealthiest Americans paying little or no income taxes. The majority of us see the line item right
1: in our own paychecks, but the wealthiest <laughs> Americans are legally paying little to no income
0: tax. Yeah, a lot of people don't like this. That's according to a report in ProPublica, which obtained IRS data on the ultra-rich, like Amazon founder and former South Florida resident Jeff Bezos. CBS 4's Lisa Preston shows us how the other half dodges the tax man.
2: When most of us get paid, so does Uncle Sam. You're really taxed a lot you tax more than you should be, probably. But nonprofit investigative journalism organization ProPublica obtained never-before-seen IRS information and found the 25 richest Americans sometimes paid little or no federal income taxes. That includes Warren Buffett, Elon Musk, Michael Bloomberg, and Jeff Bezos, now the richest person in America. He paid no federal income tax in 2007 and 2011. Their way their wealth builds, they are outside of the systems. The ultra-rich can trim their tax bills through charitable donations or by avoiding wage income. They choose when to take income. Sometimes they don't
1: take income at all, they don't take wages. And uh, it's only taxed when they sell, and they often don't sell. They borrow to fund their lifestyles.
2: None of this is illegal, which begs the question... Does Congress need to change the law? I do believe they should, yeah. And I believe they should overhaul the whole tax system. It is ridiculous that the wealthy are not paying taxes, and we're paying all of the taxes. President Biden has proposed higher taxes on the rich, including raising the capital gains tax. Both Warren Buffett and Michael Bloomberg responded to ProPublica, saying they support an increase in taxes on the wealthy and donate much of their wealth. Elise Preston,
0: CBS News, New York. The IRS is investigating the source of those leaked tax documents. Right, well, they're focusing on the source of the documents, and we all others of us are concerned about how little some of the wealthiest pay in taxes. I'd like to welcome our guest, Dedrick Asante Mohammed, who joined the National Community Reinvestment Coalition in January of 2019 as the Chief of Race, Wealth and Community. Currently, he serves as Chief of Membership Policy and Equity. During his tenure as Chief of Race, Wealth, and Community, he oversaw Fair Housing, Fair Lending, and Women's Business Center of DC, the National Training Academy, the Housing Counseling Network, and started the Racial Economic Equity Department. As chief of membership policy and equity, Dedrick oversees the membership organizing research policy. He comes from Prosperity Now, where he was senior fellow and founder of the Racial Wealth Divide Initiative. Before Prosperity Now, Dedrick worked for the NAACP, where he was the Senior Director of the Economic Department and Executive Director of the Financial Freedom Center. Dedrick Asante Mohammed has also worked for the Reverend Al Sharpton's National Action Network and the Institute for Policy Studies. He serves as Chair of the Board of Beyond Savvy, an organization focused on financial empowerment for the justice and the justice for the impacted. He sits on a variety of advisory boards, including Advancing Black Strategies Initiative, National League of Cities, Racial Wealth Divide Initiative, Financial Health Networks, Pulse, Landis, and Better Markets. Really busy guy there, Dedrick Asante Mohammed. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Dedrick.
0: Okay, thank you for that. Diedrich Asante Mohammed, yeah. right, okay. And so, Diedrich, tell us, I mean, we saw the numbers in, in the intro that I gave. I talked about the stark difference in the wealth uh, gap between black households and white households. White households, $189,000, and black households, $24,000, 100 um, give us some of the key reasons you think this exists,
1: Dietrich. Yeah, and I just want to thank you for that thorough breakdown in the beginning. It was a great breakdown of racial economic inequality uh, in the country. Um, and, you know, so, so, so to respond to the question of, you know, how did we get here or why are we here, uh, I like to reframe this and I usually point to, I mean, I, I, you know, I think what's important to note is that the country was founded, on deep racial wealth inequality, racial economic inequality, right? The, the mass enslavement of African people, black people was an act of concentrating wealth, of taking a people and make and making them the privatized wealth of whites and that then laid the found work the groundwork for ongoing wealth development, just as the taking of indigenous land and the massacres against indigenous people was part of a wealth concentration you know, for whites at the expense of people of color. So we have that history, and I think what we've been seeing over the last 40 years, which has been or maybe even 60 years, which has been very disappointing, is that the country has done very little to address uh, the depths of racial economic inequality, particularly racial wealth inequality. So I think many people think of race relations, they think, well, well, you know, if they recognize there's inequality, they might think, well, we're not where we want to be, but we're getting there. But in terms of racial wealth inequality, no, we're not getting there. We're not bridging it. It's actually growing in terms of total dollars, and we need radical changes in policies and approaches if we're going to finally get the country off the path of ongoing racial economic apartheid.
0: Right. And what about these measures that uh, President Biden outlined? He outlined them, announced them. Then he was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, for the 100th anniversary of that massacre of black people that happened there uh, by white, I call, say, terrorists. Um, they say white rioters. Um, you know, it's been criticized for as uh, not enough. Uh, your comments on, tell us what he has proposed and why do you think much more is needed? Yeah, he had two primary
1: proposals in his uh, speech of talking about the Tulsa massacre. Uh, one was uh, his call to address the uh, of unequal evaluation of black homes as compared to white homes, and uh, his analysis that that is, you know, a great hindrance in racial wealth inequality and unequal. Evaluation of the value of a black home as compared to a similar home in a white neighborhood. I'd like to get a little bit into that. I think uh, in a minute, you know, I think the primary challenge actually we really need to deal with is how to strengthen black home ownership rates, uh, more so than try to paint a uh, uh, a critical picture of uh, of home of, of home evaluators. But uh, I think the, the area where he was. More substantive was he was looking at entrepreneurship and procurement contracts, federal government procurement contracts, and did propose to increase a federal procurement around $20 billion a year for a program called the Socially Disadvantaged Program. That is a substantive increase. It's usually around $56 billion, uh, spent in federal procurement dollars for socially disadvantaged businesses, which are almost exclusively people of color businesses. So I think that $20 billion is positive. Uh, you know, I think the question and the critique that many people have is this is not a agenda that holistically deals with racial wealth inequality or racial economic inequality. If it was a speech on how to strengthen uh, entrepreneurship or how to strengthen uh, federal procurement uh, uh, for uh, minority entrepreneurs, that would be one thing, and I think he could say he made a substantive proposal. for so putting these two proposals as as if they're going to have a substantive impact on racial wealth inequality, racial economic inequality as a whole, uh, I think has, you know, put him in a place uh, open, open for criticism.
0: Right. And I mean, you're absolutely right on that. I mean, when you look at the fact that uh, looking at who the poor are in the United States, the rise in, in homelessness, increasingly uh, women and children, the rise of um, in mass incarceration and with single mothers being the fastest growing numbers of people uh, going to prison. And, and a lot of that has to do with crimes of poverty. Of course, the opioid epidemic has also uh, led to that. But you see this you know with what's going on, on on Capitol hill it's like all of we are one we're all on the same page well no we're not just if you look at those uh those numbers so black home ownership is uh, vital and important and needs to be promoted and Um, Biden seems to be, he says, he's setting aside $10 billion of infrastructure funds to also rebuild disadvantaged uh, neighborhoods. But we also see the the gutting of of social uh, safety nets. And then the tax system. Tell us a bit about the impact of the tax system on the racial wealth divide, Dietrich. Yes, and let me also
1: just note, you know, this this the promise of ten billion dollars for investment uh, in disadvantaged communities. You know, okay, you know that sounds, uh, you know, powerful and strong. But my question is, what is the analysis? What is the analysis of what type of impact this is going to have? Because I think, so you know, this is uh, very problematic. If people will throw out big numbers and say they're going to make this investment in the name of racial equity or a name of increasing black home ownership, but there's no uh, breakout of, well, what effect do you think this is going to have? Do we we expect that over four or five years, this will move black home ownership rates from 43% to 48%? What's the, you know, what's the goal? Because I think uh, without that, what we just have is program after program being put forward, some being enacted, but actually very little movement in the uh, undergirding problem that they're saying they're putting these programs forward to address. So I think, you know, that's a huge problem around uh, many of the proposals being put forward. It's not clear what type of impact it's supposed to have. As toward the tax system, I mean, you know, you're absolutely right. I think one of the great challenges uh, for African-Americans in particular in addressing racial economic inequality is as we, you know, deconstructed outright, uh, you know, legal racial discrimination – Uh, in the 50s and 60s, we moved toward a a more regressive economy uh, that really solidified, uh, say, early 1980. So with that is that even when the economy is doing well, quote-unquote, and it's booming, most of those uh, benefits are going to the wealthiest 1%, the highest income 1%. So even if you have less outright racial discrimination and prejudice, uh, the economy is still moving in a way that is maintaining, uh, you know, blacks, Latinos, uh, many others in uh, economically insecure positions. And again, you know, with the tax system, you know, I, I note all the time we spend almost eight hundred billion dollars a year in wealth and asset development through various uh, different types of tax subsidies. The challenge with that is that eight hundred billion dollars mostly goes to those who already have wealth and who are the wealthiest Americans. So we each year are reinvesting in wealth concentration in this country and reinvesting in asset poverty for the majority of African Americans and majority of Latinos and many people throughout the country so the tax system is an essential uh, area we have to work on to address racial economic inequality
0: right and i mean there's home ownership uh, or lack thereof the the tax system, I mean, all the redlining and discrimination, et cetera, that happens. And it seems at every level, even getting um, home insurance or whatever it is you're doing, in the United States, it seems impacted by the racism, the institutional and other racism in the country. Um, But in addition to home ownership, you also see that black families in the South who have lost so much uh, land, um, according there are 12 million acres of farmland, uh, mostly from the 1950s onwards. And, and we see that there's been a push and some uh, progress on the part of uh, President Biden in terms of some funding uh, for black farmers, of which roundly criticized. Uh, but before we have to wrap up, uh, Dietrich I'm wondering, you know, there are a lot of people who will say, well, you know, it just tells you these black people, they're just not picking themselves up by the bootstraps or other people of color, um, because that explains um, why the median wealth for white households and black households such a great difference. Now, you and I know that that is far from the truth. But what are some of the measures Dietrich, that you think need to happen to go not, perhaps not resolve the issue entirely but certainly start to chip away at it Dietrich
1: yeah, so I think you know on a on the level that President Biden has the most control on is I think you know he could have a, he started a broad announcement of having stronger racial uh, equity analysis racial economic equity analysis on government policies and programs. And in a report I did with IPS a year or so ago, 10 Policy Solutions to Bridge the Racial Wealth Divide, and we put forward that there should be a racial economic equity audit on all major, uh, uh, all major uh, federal legislation that has significant amounts of spending so we can have a clear understanding at the beginning. Will this investment help to bridge racial wealth inequality? Will it maintain it? Will it... Uh, Will it make it worse? So we, we need this type of analysis, and I think this is something President Biden could uh, have much do much more on, is making sure that his policies, his departments, whether it's procurement or whether it's job training programs, have an analysis of, oh, African Americans have twice the unemployment rate of whites. So if we really want to have an equitable uh, employment training program, we need to have a target. Of, 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 uh, of, of this amount of African-Americans in the system, and we're looking to, you know, bridge this unemployment gap, you know, in four or five years by a certain amount. I think, you know, we need this type of technical analysis, which, uh, which he has the power to do as president and as overseeing all of these federal agencies. And then I think you know, there's much broader, bigger policies that are needed to really, as we mentioned on earlier, we need to uh, transform our economy from a regressive economy to a progressive economy and really, re- really create a new 21st century American middle class economy. Because right now we are on the path of having an economy, you know, pretty much of a great economic divide that is reinforced by a great racial divide.
0: Yeah. And just there's the policy end, and then there's the movement. And uh, just recently, the Reverend William Barber, who is a, a joint coordinator of the Poor People's Campaign and National Call for Moral Revival, he's called for a restructuring of U.S. policies to root out uh, poverty um, and racism starting, beginning, from the bottom up and he's calling for a third uh, reconstruction. So, you know, and and there's apparently been a resolution introduced into Congress, which is non-binding. It is a resolution, but really calling for that. But it seems as though he is saying that there needs to be a a complete overhaul. And he also speaks uh, quite a bit that although disproportionately uh, people of color are impacted, uh, by poverty, that if just on the basis of numbers, you look at it, it is not only an issue for black and brown people, but that there are a lot of poor white folks as well. So um, I'm wondering um, your final thoughts on, on all of this, Dietrich.
1: Yeah, no, I do think, you know, movements have been playing an important part in elevating the conversations and, and highlighting uh, the need to address uh, regressive economics, the concentration of wealth, uh, everything from poor people's campaigns Black Lives Matter to the whole uh, kind of movement against the 1% Occupy. So, you know, I think the country is more focused on this, but we really haven't had a clear ongoing national movement that can push forth the legislation necessary or even, even the frameworks necessary to really address a what would be a radical shift in the American in the American economy i think just as we had a radical shift in 1980 to a much more conservative trickle down economics from a more uh, progressive bottom up economy that was marred by great sexism and racism we now need again this progressive economy that's a bottom up economy that for the first time is much more gender inclusive and uh, race and ethnic inclusive
0: Right. And, uh, Diedrich Asante Mohammed, if people want to uh, get in touch with you or or follow your work, what should they do?
1: Yes, you can uh, find me on Twitter at Diedrich M. I have a Facebook page, uh, Bridging the Racial Wealth Divide, uh, WordPress, uh, bridgingtheracialwealthdivide.wordpress. And you can check out the National Community Reinvestment Coalition website, ncrc.org.
0: Okay, well, Dietrich, Mohammed, thank you so very much. We'll have you back because um, it's, you know, for a lot of people, just wrapping our heads around these economic issues can be quite a challenge. So we appreciate you taking the time to join us. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.